on a journey through the book of 2 Corinthians uh, over the last little bit. We're in chapter 5 here today. Pastor Art did a wonderful job last week explaining about how we are uh, jars of clay with a wonderful treasure. And the treasure is Jesus Christ, the Lord, who indwells us. And uh, we uh, learned that last week. And this week, the conversation continues. And it continues in the vein of eternity and understanding eternity. And, uh, you know, eternity is one of those uh, fun things to talk about, um, especially uh, when, when we understand what Christ has done for us. Uh, my kids love to bring up what heaven will be like. And, you know, their imagination runs wild. It's, it's wonderful uh, to talk about that. And eternity is something that we should, as believers in Jesus Christ, look forward to. But, but let's note this, that uh, the moment you're born, you will live forever. Everyone in our gathering today uh, is going to live forever. The moment that you are born, you will never cease to exist. That's an important thing. Beyond that, you will never lock eyes with someone. Listen to me. You'll never lock eyes with someone who will not live forever. You'll, you'll never rub shoulders with someone who isn't going to uh, live forever. It's just not going to happen. The moment you are born, you will live forever. Sometimes in our culture, in our day, we uh, get distracted by the temporal. We get distracted by the things that uh, are, are around us, and we lose sight of the eternal. We tend to think that this day's problems or tomorrow's uh, uh, challenges are more important than eternity. Paul, with the church of Corinth, wants to hone them in. And some of the things we're going to hear today, they're going to, they're going to be hard to hear. And, and that's kind of been a bit of our theme. And they're going to be hard to take. But by the grace and mercy of God, we, we can embrace eternity and all that it holds. If you have your Bibles, and I encourage you to please bring your Bibles, Second Corinthians chapter 5, turn there with me. It's always wonderful to underline a few things or to write some notes as God speaks to you and to your heart. Sometimes cross-referencing things or the the Lord prompts you to go look at another verse. When you have your Bible, it's easier to do that. And so please bring your Bibles. Here now from God's Word, as recorded, 2 Corinthians, penned by Paul to the church of Corinth. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, and he has given us his spirit as a guarantee. So we, have always, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 
Let's take a moment to pray, and then we'll dive into this. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it proclaims. Lord, we come to your word uh, this morning with different things seeking to distract us. And uh, Lord, we actively want to submit ourselves to you and to your work in our lives. And so speak to us this morning. May your truth come and set us free, we ask. And may we leave this place knowing that we've encountered you, the one true God, through the precious Lamb of God, whose blood was shed that we could come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Love how Paul uh, begins this uh, transition. Notice that it's not a therefore, therefore what for, who for. No, instead he, he begins by saying, for we know. We know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Notice how Paul starts. There's an absolute confidence here in his salvation. And, and, and really, not just in his salvation, but all who call on the name of the Lord can have a confidence. For we know. We know that if the tent, our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God. It's a house. It's not maybe. Well, we're hoping. Well, we're not sure. No, he knows that when he dies, when his body is destroyed, when, when time has passed, that he is confident that his God has made a home for him with his hands that's eternal in the heavens. He knows. Think about that. He knows. I love that. I love that he has this confidence as he kind of walks through his life that he is confident that when he dies, there is a eternity that's set before him that is awesome fantastic no eye has seen nor ear has heard nor mind has conceived all that the lord has in store for him that's what paul says in first corinthians he knows that his eternity is secured he knows you know i'm reminded of a conversation i had uh with a fella uh, a few years back I, i suppose it was about eight years ago Elijah was just barely born, and uh, uh, we were in Hamilton, and I was doing open-air evangelism. I was preaching on the street corner, and I had my paintboard up, and, and this taxi cab kind of pulls around the corner. He stops, and he rolls down his window to listen to me preach. It was kind of neat, so I'm preaching kind of loud and making sure he can hear me, and, and after my message, uh, I, I walked over to the window. The window was down. I said, what did you think of that? And uh, he said, never heard that. I said, you've never heard the gospel? He said, nope, never heard the gospel. I said, can I get in? He said, sure. And so I jumped into his taxi cab. His name was Muhammad. He was from Egypt, from Alexandria. And so we started talking about the gospel. And uh, I was teaching some people how to do open-air evangelism, and there's a guy named Jamie. And I said, Jamie, jump in the back. Be a part of our conversation. And Muhammad was fine with that, so Jamie jumps in. We have this wonderful conversation about who Jesus is. And we have a conversation about the importance of the gospel and what Jesus has done. And, and, and time is kind of uh, uh, getting ahead. It's about 30 minutes, and my team is waiting over here. They're waiting for me, and I thought, I can't keep doing this. I, I need to end the conversation. So I looked at Muhammad, and I said, Muhammad, this is so important. Because if I'm right and you're wrong, your eternity is on the line. Would you agree? He said, yeah. I said, if you're right and I'm wrong, 
paradise is not mine. Yes. I said, Muhammad, can we, can we talk further? Would you be open to that? It was a Friday night. He said, yeah. I said, when are you free? He said, Sunday afternoon. I said, okay. Pam's coffee shop was right there. I can still pay. Pam's coffee. I said, let's go to Pam's coffee shop. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So two o'clock we agreed to meet. I brought my Bible. I brought a Bible for him and I brought the Quran that I had received uh, uh, from um, the Muslim School Association at Mac University. So I brought all these three things. And my idea was that we'd meet a few times. He could read the Bible, uh, read the Gospel of John. I'll read the Quran, whatever he wanted me to, and we could discuss it. This was my idea. And so I get there, and there's four Muslims there. There's him, two uh, uh, converts to Muslim from Christianity, and his cousin, and me. <laughs> Woohoo! It was pretty exciting, pretty intense. And, uh, you know, um, I can match intensity. It got pretty loud, I have to tell you. We were, it wasn't rude. We weren't, we weren't being mean with each other, but we were talking loud because this is a passionate conversation. At one point, the uh, lady, the store clerk who serves the tea and the coffee, she comes over and says, if you guys don't quiet down, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. You are scaring my customers out of here. I was quick to say, I'm so sorry. That's not the intent. But, you know, we're into this. And this is of eternal consequences. This is, this is critical. And so we have this conversation. At the end of it, I say to him, Muhammad, would you come to my house? He says, yeah, sure. I said, okay, well, let's exchange numbers and we'll arrange something. And so uh, we exchanged numbers. I invite him over. And it was during Ramadan. And, uh, and so he said to me, Pastor uh, Scott, he said, I can come, but I, I have to break the fast before I eat with you. I said, no problem. So we made arrangements. We had supper. And uh, that was pretty intense too. You know, my wife is there. Elijah's newly born. He brought a, a chair for Elijah. I still have it. It's a blue chair. And uh, we uh, have it still. We use it for all our kids. And it was a gift that he brought. And I'll never forget, as we're sitting in the living room, our conversation moves to the living room. And and as we're, we're talking about uh, Islam versus Christianity and who Jesus is, is he merely a prophet or is he the son of God? I remember looking at Muhammad and I said, you know, Muhammad, does Allah love me? And he said, I, I, I don't know if I can say that Allah loves you. I said, Muhammad, make no mistake, God loves you. And that's why he sent his son to die on the cross. And then I said this to him. And I, I don't know where I got this boldness to say this, or um, I, I trust that it was the Spirit, but I, I looked at him and I said, Muhammad, make no mistake, um, I'm going to heaven. For sure. I said, my wife is going to heaven. For sure. I said, it's not because uh, I'm a good person or because I'm a pastor or because I, I tell people about Jesus. It's not because I, I try hard or I'm sincere. It's not because of what I do that I can say I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven because Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. He's paid in full for all my sin. He is the reason that I can say with assurance that I am going to heaven. 
Muhammad, you can know for sure you're going to heaven if you trust in him. It's not your good works, Muhammad. It's not the things that you do that will secure your home in heaven. It's what he has done. See, that's what Paul's talking about here. I know, he says, we know that the tent that is earthly, that is our earthly home, if it's destroyed, listen, we have a building from God. You see, it's God who uh, uh, secures our salvation. It's Jesus Christ who secures our salvation. And it's not about good works. No, it's grace that saves us. See, look what uh, Paul says here. It's God who builds the home, and he builds it, uh, the house not made with hands. It's eternal in the heavens. Listen, this is not uh, an accident Paul is saying this. See, in Corinth, there's seven temples where idolatry runs rampant. And what does idolatry? It's when they built an idol to accomplish that which, it, uh, that which they wanted. An idol is simply a construct uh, that, that brings life uh, blessings. There's no unnecessary God. All of them satisfy one human need or another. Idols are lifeless projections of a human imagination. Things made with human hands. Not only are they constructed by human hands, they're maintained by human hands and human effort. See, Paul knows his audience They have been pulled out of pagan worship and idolatry. And he's saying, listen, there's a a contrast when we talk about Jesus Christ. It's God who builds the home. It's not made with hands. It's by the cross. You see, Jesus Christ has paid him full for all our sins. He's our hope. He's the reason we have resurrection. He's the reason we're confident. It's nothing to do with us. Actually, when we realize how broken we are, when we realize how sinful we are, and how much we need Christ, that's when our confidence increases. See, Paul says, I I know, we know, all can know that even if the tent that is earthly is destroyed, We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Our hope is secure in Him, not in ourselves. Our hope is secure in what Christ has done, not what we have done. See, Paul wants the church of Corinth to completely understand that it is Christ-centered, not human-centered. It's not about our efforts and the things that we do. Our eternity in heaven, is secured because of him. And we can know it. Because our confidence isn't in ourselves, but in him. For if this tent, he goes on to say, in this tent, I'm sorry, we groan. We long to put on the heavenly dwelling, the righteousness of Christ. We long to, to be clothed in, in the righteousness of Christ, to, to put away the old, to put away the sin, to be, to be completely sanctified in the presence of Christ. We long for this. We groan for this. We long to be made whole. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. What's this image of nakedness? Well, it comes from Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve encountered the serpent in the garden and had been clearly instructed not to eat the fruit of the tree of good and evil. Instead, they determined to do things their own way. They figured they knew better than God. 
They figured that God was a killjoy, that God was trying to keep something from them, and so they ate. There were three consequences to them eating or participating in eating in the tree of good and knowledge. The first consequence was guilt. Uh, They were guilty. (laughs) And that's why when they stood on trial before God, they're blaming everyone else. It wasn't me, it's the woman. It's her fault. It wasn't me. It's the serpent. I mean, it's just just big, let's blame everyone else. Guilt. And you and I, we struggle with guilt, don't we? We're guilty. We know we are. Uh, Fear. They ran. They hid themselves from the presence of God. God walked in the cool of the garden in the morning. And what are they doing? They're hiding. Fear. Uh, Thirdly, shame. They took leaves and sewed them together to cover their nakedness. Who told you you were naked, God says? Nakedness is an image of shame. And, And what Paul is saying here is that, you know, we can put away and not be found naked. But we can have the, the, the righteousness of Christ. We've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we're tired of our brokenness. Paul's, Paul knows this well. And in Romans chapter 7, he says, Why do I do the things I don't want to do, but the things that I do want to do, I cannot do. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this life of sin? It's not me, but sin in me. Working. There's a longing to put away those things and to be found whole in Christ. There's a longing to dwell in the glory of Christ, to to put away that which is our broken, sinful self and to realize the righteousness of Christ completed in us as we stand before him. We long, we groan to, to, be, to have our heavenly dwelling. He goes on to say, for while we are still here in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Because we can't live this life that we long to live. We struggle. We struggle to be all that Christ wants us to be. We, we are in a battle that rages against us, both the demonic and the world system. And, and sin within us is constantly battling. We groan. We carry this burden. And we long not to be unclothed, but to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And our hope is found in what he has done in the completion of the resurrection. Our hope is in him, and we long to be in his presence. And so there's this tension, this tension of of being present here and longing to be with our Heavenly Father. We echo what the psalmist says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, than a thousand elsewhere. You see, he who has prepared us for this very thing, Paul goes on to say, is God. It's God at work in us. It's not us accomplishing. It's not about our striving. It's about God and the very things that he's doing in our lives. And it's he who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. You see, Paul's hope and assurance rests in what Christ has done. His confidence, his knowledge that he too will be saved is in Christ in the resurrection. And the guarantee is found in the Spirit. God seals it. And he seals us. And so we can have this confidence. This confidence that he is going to complete the things that he is doing in our lives. 
And so therefore, in light of what Christ has done for us, in light of the fact that our eyes are fixed on him, in light of the fact that his salvation is more than enough, his sacrifice is complete, therefore, we can always be of good courage. For we know that while we're at home in the body, we're not, we are away from the Lord. We can, we, can, we can walk with good courage or with confidence because our confidence isn't in us, but in him. We can be of good courage, and we know that while we're in the home and the body, we're away from the Lord. We long to be with the Lord, but, but we, we haven't realized that. And so we trust him, and we walk by faith and not by sight. Hmm, I love that. The just shall live by faith. That's what Habakkuk says. No, that's what Romans says. The whole book of Romans is built around the premise that the just shall live by faith. And so we trust that Christ is enough. We, we lean on him. We allow Christ to be our sufficiency. And we, we, by faith, continue to move forward, trusting that the Spirit has guaranteed what he has promised in the work of the cross. We don't live by sight, but by faith. We lean in. And yes, we are of good courage, he goes on to say. And we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We'd rather be present with the Lord. But we're obedient. We yield, and we trust. We trust that when the Lord seeks to work through us and the Lord seeks to, to, to keep us in our circumstances, that it is for good reason. And then Paul says this, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Paul kind of brings it down to a burning focus here in Second Corinthians. Paul says the most important thing isn't everyone else's approval, The most important thing isn't what other people think. The most important thing is that he is pleased. That we are pleasing him. When we lie down our head at night, when we go to rest at night, the question that we should be asking is, are you pleased, Lord? Are you satisfied? Are you pleased, Lord? Are you pleased with how the day went, with the decisions I've made? Are you pleased, Lord, with the way I walked with you, the way I yielded to you? Lord, are you pleased? That's our aim. That's our goal. See, this goes so contrary to the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth was worried what everyone else thought. They wanted the accolades of people, not the pleasure of God. And so whether we're at home or away, irregardless of our circumstances, our goal is that Jesus Christ is pleased. He's pleased. Why? Why? Because Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The word for judgment seat is actually a a Greek word. It's called bima seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Well, we really need to understand Corinth to understand this portion of the scriptures. Now, as I told you, Corinth was a community that, that had just been started under Julius Caesarius about 46 AD. And when the community was put together, look what Paul Barnett says about how quickly and rapidly it had transformed into a major community. The prosperity of Corinth and its constituents was seen. Port so quickly acquired after its refounding was manifested in a great array of splendid buildings and facilities. Sil- 
city walls, paved roads, harbor infrastructure, water supply, agora, shopping area, senate house, numerous temples, fountains, monuments, gymnasium, baths, school administration, buildings, theaters, library, parks, athletic fields. All this came so quickly, says Barnett. As a matter of fact, if you go there and you look at uh, Corinth, the community, you'll see signs of the Agora, which is the city square. I learned about the Agora when I was at Lakehead University uh, doing my undergrad. The Agora was the marketplace. It was where everyone hung out in between classes. I frequent there quite a bit. (laughs) Maybe more than I should have. My class was sometimes there, even though the professor wasn't. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Just kidding. Opposite the Agora was the Bema seat, and it remains there with shops, and in the background is Apollo's temple. Uh, we've talked about that and how Paul is pushing against that. Now, the Bema seat was for the uh, Isthium Games, sorry, in ancient Greece, a festival of athletic and musical competition in honor of the sea gods. It was held in the spring of the second and fourth year of each Olympiad at his sanctuary on the Isthma of the Corinth. Why is this important? Because among other things, these games were a collection of chariot races. They were a collection of the ultimate fighter and wrestling, music and poetic uh, competitions where people would come together and sing or play instruments or read their poetry and be judged. In addition, you would find boxing. And the awarding of these competitions would happen at the Bema seat. It was the place where those who had won their event would be rewarded for their hard work. See, it is Paul who is speaking about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He's saying this, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Each one of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the things that we've done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, friends... This is not a judgment of heaven or hell. This is a judgment of the saints. The context demands that that's what it is. So how does this work? Well, simply put, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's a gift of God. See, friends, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. That's where our salvation lies. But listen to what the next part says, and we've talked about this numerous times. For we are his workmanship, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works uh, that he has prepared before time or in eternity past. Think about that. Friends, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says that we've been created or saved for good works. This is how it works. God in eternity past was so interested uh, and aware of your daily life. He, the triune God, made plans for you. Good works that he wanted you to walk in. See, it's not about good works for you to accomplish on your own and sort of say, hey God, what do you think? Not bad, eh? No, 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 no. That's not what this is. this is. This is God. You have prepared good works. I want to walk in step with you. In the morning when we wake up, we should be saying, God, what good works have you prepared for me this day? Help me to walk in step with you. 
It's an act of submission. I so appreciate on Tuesday night as an elders board, we were meeting and we were talking about uh, submission. And it came up, and I, I, I just love it. Submission isn't easy. Just submit. That's, 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 not, that's not what we're talking about here. It's far more complex. It's active submission. It's yielding all that we are, all of our mind, our will, all of our body to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Lord, you have determined in eternity past good works for me to do. I surrender all to you. I actively surrender all to you. In the Spirit, he guarantees that we are saved, but more than that, he does a work in us. He transforms us into the likeness of Christ. We don't achieve this on our own. No, it's the fruit of the Spirit. But more than that, He connects us to the body and He gives us gifts, spiritual gifts to accomplish kingdom work. So so get this. By grace we are saved through faith. This is unbelievable. We're saved by faith in, in Jesus Christ the Lord. Then He's determined good works. And so we say, God, what good works do you want to do? I want to walk with you. What good works? He's planned good works. Okay, I, I see the good work. Now, now, I can't do that. And God goes, I know you can't do that. That's good. Now, rest in me. All right? I rest in you. I submit to you. I surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I willfully surrender to you. You do it through me. I actively and somewhat violently surrender to you. And then... When you accomplish that which you cannot accomplish on your own, and then when you surrender to the will and the work of God, look at this. Verse 10 says, We all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. (laughs) The miracle is that not only does God prepare the good work, not only does God enable us to do the good work, he rewards us for doing the good work. See, that's the nature of God, isn't it? Many will tell you that the nature of God is to be a killjoy. Many will tell you that the nature of God is to steal. Many will tell you that God is not fair, that God is not generous. But this declares the generosity of God. That each one of us will stand before Jesus Christ the Lord on judgment. We will stand to receive rewards for the works we've done that he prepared, that he enables. And he'll reward us. Friends, what a glorious day it will be. I'll see some of you there. I may see Pastor Art standing before Jesus Christ the Lord. And with great anticipation, I'm going to be like, man, we journeyed together. We encouraged one another. You know, it was hard sometimes. And then when Jesus Christ the Lord goes, good job, Pastor Art. He may not call him Pastor, I don't know. Maybe just Art. (laughs) Or Stanley, is it Stanley? Or Art, Art. yeah, won't go there, sorry. He's saying, stop, stop right now. (laughs) I'll cheer. Because he's my friend. Because we've journeyed together. Friends, the beam of seat of Christ for each one of us should be a glorious day where we receive a reward for the work he did in and through us. Yea, God. What a glorious day. Friends, but we would be amiss if we didn't mention that there is another judgment. And it's, it's not quite the same. 
See, in Revelation chapter 20, there's what's called the great white throne of judgment. It's not for the believer. In chapter 20, it goes on to say this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing in the throne, and books were opened, and then another book was opened, and which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book, and according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, there's another judgment. It's called the great white throne of judgment. And anyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, friends, will be cast into the lake of fire. And it is eternal. It is eternal. It will last forever. Ezekiel says that God will show no pity to those who have denied Jesus Christ the Lord, the Lamb. He will show no pity. His wrath will be poured out on all who have rejected him in the lake of fire. And it is eternal. The great evangelist Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God where he expresses the eternality of hell. Listen to what he says. It would be dreadful to be sure this fearsome and wrath almighty God for but a moment. But you must suffer it for all eternity. There will be no end to this Exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you. You will be swallowed up in all your thoughts, amaze your soul. You will absolutely despair of having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, no millions of millions of ages in wrestling and in conviction with this almighty, merciless vengeance. And then when you have done so, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains. And so that our punishment will indeed be infinite. Oh, who can express the state of a soul in such circumstances? Friends, there's another judgment. It's called the great white throne of judgment, the lake of fire. God wants to extend mercy to you and to me. He loves you, and he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to spare you from the wrath of God. He bids you to come and to receive his free gift of salvation. His wrath was satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ who conquered sin and death. Friends, friends, if you've never called on his name, I beg you to this day, this day, admit your sin, admit your selfishness, admit your pride and arrogance and your self-sufficiency and call on the mercy of God. I beg you this day to call on Jesus Christ who has died for your sin, who has paid the justice for your sin. 
I beg you to call on his name this day and to receive the free gift of salvation and allow the spirit of the living God to be the guarantee that you know, that you know, that you know you have an eternal home with Jesus Christ the Lord. I beg you to call on him. Because friends, there's an eternity separated from God that will not end. And God will not have pity on you or mercy. Today he will, but then he won't. Today's the day of salvation. Call on his name. Let's stand together. Let's bow our heads together, please. Consider these things this day. Live in light of eternity, not today or tomorrow. Allow God to be God. If you don't know if you're saved, if you don't know if Jesus Christ is your Savior, then today is the day to know and receive the Spirit as a guarantee. What must you do to receive eternal life, to avoid this terrible Terrible wrath of God for all eternity. You must admit your sin, your selfishness. You must admit admit that you are seeking to be self-sufficient. And confess your need for a Savior. Maybe today you want to pray a prayer similar to that and call on his name and be saved. I'm going to lead a prayer, and if you want to, you can repeat after me. It's not the words. It's the heart It's not magic, it's a person. And the person is Jesus Christ. He will save you. And so pray something like this. Father God, forgive me. I'm selfish. I've done things my own way. I'm self-centered. I'm sorry for rejecting your son and what he did on the cross for me. For too long. Save me. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. Thank you that he paid the price for me. That he's my substitute. I need you. Seal me with your spirit. Change me and transform me into your likeness. Build an eternal home for me in the heavenlies. If you prayed that prayer with everyone's head bowed, just indicate by lifting your hand that today is a different day. It's a new day. Okay? Lord, would you seal that decision, I pray, Thank you for the finished work of the cross. Help us to walk with you. And Father, forgive us who know you, who've allowed ourselves to be distracted by the temporal instead of the eternal. Forgive us when we think our good works are what you're looking for instead of walking in your good works. Forgive us when we don't surrender 
And Lord, may that day when we stand before you, Jesus Christ the Lord, and receive our reward, the Bema Seat of Christ, may we rejoice. For it's in Christ's name we pray.